CCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. This past fall, in response to the wave of attacks on Catholic property, the Committee for Religious Liberty started the Beauty Heals Initiative, which at this point consists primarily of videos featuring bishops discussing works of art in their dioceses. Those videos can be found at www.usccb.org slash beautyheals. And while we recognize the need for advocacy, certainly we recognize that need to to protect our churches, uh, we also thought that this this, um, unfortunate series of events could be an opportunity to say something about why sacred art is so important to Catholics. Well, one Sunday morning, uh, I was with my family at Mass, and Father Vincent DeRosa, St. Mary, Mother of God, announced an organ concert that would take place at our parish. And I really just love the way that in that brief announcement, he articulated how art can be a way to show people the beauty of the gospel. So I'm pleased to welcome Father DeRosa to the podcast today. Father DeRosa is a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington and serves as pastor at St. Mary Mother of God Parish in Washington, D.C. Father DeRosa, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Power of art uh, to call um, all of us to conversion is a theme that has, it seems to me, pops up in your homilies. And so I wonder if you could first just talk a little bit about your own personal experience. How did this theme become such an important part of your ministry? Sure. Um, it's actually at the root of my whole uh, kind of faith story, really, in terms of uh, the act of adopting of my baptismal faith when I was a kid. Um, a teenager, rather. I was uh, I was at home one summer, and we weren't allowed to watch TV, and um, because my parents didn't want us, you know, just constantly looking at screens, and so um, I was so bored. How bored was I? I was so bored. I actually picked up a book. Uh, I have my uncle, my godfather, would always send me books for Christmas, for my birthday, whatever, and they were usually to do with his favorite subject which is Renaissance art. So one day I finally picked up one of the books that he had sent, and it was a, uh, a, a young person's biography of Leonardo da Vinci. And reading this you know, basic kind of uh, biography of him, I discovered for the first time the idea that there were all these people who thought that humanity was moving in a direction together as a community, from historically from point A to point B to something better. And collectively, colloquially, these folks were known as Renaissance men. And what animated their pilgrimage, as it were, was their faith. So looking at all the beauty that these great artists produced, which is just so impressive, just at face value, right, to look at, and thinking about what unified them, their faith, their Catholic faith, I realized, I have that too. I'm Catholic too. I'm 500 years later, you know, we're still here. And it, it got me started thinking about my faith and and praying and using sacred art in all these different books that my uncle had sent me uh, as kind of an inspiration. And things just kind of went from there. Uh, And then when I was in seminary, I was sent to study in Rome uh, for five years. And I was just immersed in in that whole world of of art and beauty and aesthetics. So it, it was really, it's just been amazing. Can you say something about um, art and beauty and evangelization? It seems to me that 
oftentimes we can think of evangeliz- evangelization primarily as about presenting the truth of the gospel, and certainly that's good and right. Um, but there's also an element of it where the beauty of it um, needs to be presented um, also. And I wonder, would you, could you say a little bit about that? Why does beauty matter for evangelization, for, for reaching out um, to the world? Well, I, th- I think it's essential for a couple of reasons. The most sort of um, esoteric and heavenly reason is because God is beautiful, right? And we want to be in communion with him forever, which we call heaven, right? That state of being in communion with God forever is heaven. So if we want to do that, we need to understand beauty and we need to, to live beautifully, right? Uh, Christ himself, who we follow, uh, who is God and who is the son of God, the revelation of the father, right? So he, he says to us, I came to reveal my father, to glorify my father. Uh, in the Middle Ages, he was, he had this title, this beautiful title, Claritas Dei, the, the, the shining glory of God. So the way I describe it is, if, if God is, um, is, a, is pictured as the sun, right, uh, S-U-N, then the sun, S-O-N, is like the rays coming out of that sun. It's the visible part that you can see that tells you that it's there. Um, and so, you know, God is beautiful. Christ, very specifically, is the image, the revelation of that beauty to us, showing that to the world. So beauty matters for evangelization, first and foremost, for those two reasons. But there's also a very practical reason nowadays, which is that modern man, contemporary man, postmodern man, however you want to reckon this, this time that we're living in, there are, what are the things that help us to transcend this world? According to ancient philosophy, it's truth, goodness, and beauty, those three transcendentals. Because of where we are philosophically in the world, a lot of people don't believe that there is one truth, right? Everyone says, tell your truth, speak your truth, um, find your truth. Well, what about, what, what if my truth and your truth are different and, and directly conflict, right? So truth is hard for people. And goodness, goodness has always been hard right? Hey, don't you want to be good? Uh, There there used to be, there was this great song that Eartha Kitt sang called, I want to be evil. (laughs) Because there's something sort of concupiscently attractive about evil, right? Um, So truth and goodness can be really hard, especially nowadays. But beauty, beauty gets under all of the most strident human defenses. Beauty gets behind our rationalizations, it seeps in through the cracks. You can't help but be moved by beauty. The, the, the example that I, I think about often was something I, I was in seminary, we were helping to lead a pilgrimage of Washingtonians uh, up the Italian peninsula, ultimately to World Youth Day in Cologne. And there was this kid from a very, very poor inner city parish. He had had a very hard life. It was kind of a miracle that he was on this, this trip at all. And this kid had a lot of defenses up, you know, a lot of, you know, walls built around himself for a lot of reasons. And we got into the church of Etal in Austria. It's this beautiful uh, Baroque uh, monastery, basilica. And it's just, it's like being inside of a Fabergé egg when you're inside of it, inside the dome of Etal, going to the, the image of Our Lady there. And this kid just melted, you know, the beauty of the place uh, before we ever talked about any of the truth of the place or the goodness, of, the beauty just pierced through all of his hard shell. And uh, 
what does the Lord say? You know, don't have stony hearts. I want to give you fleshy hearts. Um, and, and beauty helps us to get there really fast. So beauty is very uh, theologically important. It's also very practically important for evangelization. Mother Dorosa, I'm wondering if, kind of dovetailing with what you said, if that's the reason why, you know, statues are attacked, churches are attacked. Um, I think some of the attacks on the churches um, were the, the, the attacks that Aaron spoke about, you know, were, I mean, I think I've seen, you know, the graffiti is, you know, spray painted across art and, you know, is there something about the power of, of art or all different forms of art that those who want to um, suppress religion or suppress that goodness and truth, something about it, like they almost inherently know the power of it. And so that might be part of the reason why that it, it is attacked or perhaps want to, you know, remove statues that represent religious figures from public places. Yeah, I think, well, let's, let's start with, we got to start real basic, right? Which is Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, right? This is one of the things that he, he teaches us about himself. Therefore, anything that is against that way, that, that ethical way, against that truth, that, that revealed and, and traditionally established truth, or that, that beautiful life that he, that he gives us and fills us with, um, anything that's against those things is going to be evil. So when we see these evils done, like the desecration of churches or the destruction of religious art, it's going to be anti-way, anti-truth, and anti-life. Here's the thing about that, because this is where we get into a, uh, a practical argument with folks, I think, sometimes. Anti-truth does not mean that there's a... It means irrational, right? That which is anti-truth is irrational, illogical. So I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think we'd, we'd be hard-pressed to wake up in the morning and be able to assign a rational argument to the enemies of our art, to the people who are trying to take down our art and, and, and sort of erase us from history. And that, that's the really hard part, isn't it? Because if there were a rational sort of evil genius plan, uh, you could confront it, you could grab it, you could defend against it, you know, et cetera. But sin, and in, and in this case, sort of this iconoclasm, right? This is one of the, the devil's great tactics, I think, is the fact that there is no logic behind it. It's just pure, chaotic destruction. It's kind of, you, if you want to look at a, a cultural manifestation of this, look at um, uh, The Dark Knight, you know, the, the, the Batman film with the Joker, played by Heath Ledger, right? What is so terrifying about him is that he's just pure chaos. He doesn't care about anything. And so there's nothing you can grab onto to stop him. You know, uh, and I think that for, for those who would destroy Christian art, there's really very little actual cohesive logic behind it. So I want to say that right off the bat. Now, that might be frustrating to us, but it also means that when we're talking to folks, I don't know that they even realize the, the sadness of what they're doing. Because again, it is fundamentally irrational. So I, I'd say that right off the bat. Now, why do they go after artwork specifically, the statues of people like San Junipero Serra or uh, you know, images of Our Lady in, in you know, traditional uh, church courtyards and things like that? Why do they go? Well, because that's our face. That's what we put out there for the world. So of course you lash out at the face, right? Of, of, of the person that you are, are 
turning against for whatever reason or for whatever lack of reason. So I think in that lack of reason, there's a, a great frustration, but there's also in some senses an opening because it means I don't know that we're fighting people who actually realize that they, they're treating us like enemies, but I think that we can uh, try to use use our beauty, use the, the beauty of friendship with us, use the beauty of reaching out to them, again, to get under those defenses and maybe you know, just crack open that heart a little bit for them to realize, hey, th these people are not, I shouldn't be going after these people. I shouldn't be going after their art. And so I don't, I don't know if that's a bit of a rambling explanation, but that, that's something of my take on it. No, it's very interesting. Thank you. You saying that, that the, this, these images are, the, are our face, and actually, I think that's a good segue into another question about the Catholic tradition of perspective on beauty, um, because it reminds me of the essay by Joseph Ratzinger on um, Wounded by the Arrow of Beauty, where he kind of he reflects on this, the way that that, um, as you were saying, that Christ reveals um, the father, that Jesus, that who is beautiful, and yet his countenance has also been marred on the cross and that there's this kind of juxtaposition between our religion is one that's that's kind of it's it's founded in this event where where the face of beauty is attacked and even and even that face is beautiful can you say a little bit about our particular perspective on beauty you know what makes our tradition distinctive it's even in the story you told um just a while ago about the the interior of the of the building looking like being inside a Fabergé egg mm -hmm. and yet you also sometimes have there's there can be a tradition that's where where our our artwork can look very spare or very mm -hmm. austere in some ways and, and so you kind of had different and yet they're all Christian it's all Christian in a way you know could you talk a little bit about the Catholic th this is a huge question I suppose and so I apologize for for making it so no, big but but you know, what is our, do, do we have a perspective on beauty? What makes our tradition unique and distinctive? Yeah, I think, um, so I think, first of all, if we just look at it in, in the most basic sense of uh, the Catholic tradition of beauty as distinct within Christianity, well, distinct from our Protestant uh, neighbors because uh, they very specifically reject any images in really uh, an unfortunate, tag back to uh, a, a thought that really doesn't take into account the fact that Jesus is the image of God. He's revealed his face. You could say, yes, he had a beard. No, he was not six foot two. He was five foot, what, you know, you could say all these different things about him. And therefore, because he has chosen to be seen, you can actually have an image. So they, they reject that. Uh, but, but we hold on to that. So th there's a distinction about the Catholic approach to beauty right there with our Protestant uh, neighbors, with our um, our neighbors in the Orthodox faiths, the Orthodox churches, they do have a very similar approach to us, except for this. It's just a statement of fact that the Orthodox faith has been much more localized, and so as a result, their their aesthetic has you know is very very specific in some senses. Because of our mission at the Latin Church's missionary outreach around the entire planet, uh, and a great example of this, of this is the National Shrine here in Washington, um, the, the great figures of our faith life have been depicted, 
Christ has been depicted, all the different manifestations of Christ in the saints have been depicted in every language and cultural vision on earth. And so that too is something special to the Catholic faith, right? Um, because I, in, in my own church, we have, we're trilingual in our parish, okay? There is a Cantonese speaking community, there is the extraordinary form Latin mass community, and then there's the, the ordinary form community. Uh, which worships primarily in English. And so um, in, our, in our sacristy, there's a beautiful image of the mother of God rendered as a Chinese princess holding the baby Jesus, you know, in, in typical sort of East Asian uh, depiction. And we bow to that every time we, we get ready to say mass, uh, me and the servers and so on. That's, that's amazing. The fact that we can do that is just awesome. And the fact that no matter where you go in the Catholic world, uh, you can plug into that, whether it's in a mission in California or an old, you know, bulky old church in, in Brooklyn or in some new glass uh, structure in, in Southern Florida or wherever, you know, um, or any, anywhere outside of the United States, uh, you have a home. And uh, our art allows for that. Our, our, our sense of beauty uh, allows for you to feel comfortable in all of those places, which is really kind of amazing. Father Darissa, there's also, um, this conversation is reminding me of, there's a Japanese form of pottery, I'm forgetting the name, where they actually take broken pottery and they use oh, gold, yes. gold to repair it, fill in the cracks or put it back together. And the idea is that the healed, repaired product is actually, the final piece of pottery is actually more beautiful because it has been restored. And that calls to mind the element of of suffering in our Christian life. Mm -hmm. And to me, you know, the images of the crucifix and Christ suffering and the face of God, the face of Christ, you know, in suffering on the cross. I mean, that's another element of, of I think, Christian Catholic art in particular that I think would be, would you say that that's also would make our art distinct from other Christian art? Well, that, that comes to two points. One is, yes, it is somewhat distinct in that the Latin church, before it spread beyond Europe, okay, uh, the, the, the Latin Western European Christians um, suffered because the empire fell, Rome fell. There were no other major metropolitan zones and order, you know, kind of disintegrated for a, a period of time. Whereas in the East, uh, the empire remained and order remained, uh, highways, travel, trade, all this sort of stuff, right? In the West, therefore, the cross, the symbol that God suffered in communion with us, became the dominant icon of our uh, of our aesthetic, right? In the East, if you walk into an Eastern church, very rarely do you see a crucifixion scene. You see Christ seated in glory, dressed as what? Dressed as an emperor. And so the, the economic and cultural realities of the East and the West, the, the Greek church and the Latin church, um, you know, definitely affected our artwork and gave us this very cross-centered Western uh, aesthetic, which, which is wonderful. Now, the other side to that cross-centered part, and this gets back to your question, Mary, and then and also Aaron's initial question in this round, we need to talk about drama, right? How does the, the blood-strewn face of Jesus look beautiful to anybody, right? How does the, the, the lacerated flesh of the Lord, you know, rend our hearts and make us think about beauty? 
it's because of drama. Okay, and here we want to turn back to our great Holy Father, St. John Paul II, who was a, a, an actor who loved theater, right? The beautiful thing about the theater is that it becomes a safe place, a petri dish, as it were, a laboratory uh, for us to work out our human issues. So on the stage, you can see a tragedy where everybody dies in the end. Right? They're all slain on the stage and one person is left to tell the tale. And what happens at the end of that drama? Everybody gets up and claps and smiles. Why? Not because it was so beautiful that everybody died, but because we have been able to join together in that theater for some period of time and work out something of our humanity. And the good feeling that we get from beginning to work out the bits and pieces, albeit through these people on stage, in this safe setting, this safe zone, as it were, uh, the good feeling we get is what brings us to our feet at the end to applaud until the people come out for, for their bows, right? Um, so drama, if we think about art and beauty, not just as the plastic arts, sculpture or painting, uh, but if we think of it as the dramatic arts as well, theater, music, poetry, uh, that helps us to understand how something that on its face is physically ugly can actually be tremendously beautiful in a, in a different and deeper way. Seems like to me that one challenge of, of embracing the arts um, for Christians is the way that it's, that the, the art is perceived in our, in American culture right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's often thought of as something that's only for elites, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that we kind of have this divide between uh, mass culture and high culture um, with middle brow in between. Um, but then high culture is perceived as something that's kind of like it's just for the select few. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems to me that the church's engagement with the arts challenged that view. Could you say something about that? How does, how does the church's engagement with art challenge this idea of art as strictly something that's for the elites? Yeah, it's precisely because the church exists for everybody and with a a special, a preferential option for the poor, right? Uh, that we are able to bring and make accessible to everybody all of our beauty, all of our art, all of our culture, right? Um, we have a number of homeless parishioners here at, at the parish, but they come to church every Sunday. The beauty of our church and everything that we put into this place, which for whatever reason attracts them, um, belongs to them just as much as it does to any of the donors who helped to make that art possible. Um, and they get to touch that. They don't, you know, for whatever reason, they, they don't live in uh, a beautiful place uh, physically, right? And yet they come and this church is their palace uh, whenever they want that. It, 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 heaven, a vision of heaven is made accessible to them, even though uh, they often live in hellish conditions. And so that that's, that's been throughout Catholic history, that's been the case. In fact, uh, we're recording this today on the Thursday after Ash Wednesday, and today's station church in Rome is St. George in Valabro, San Giorgio in Valabro, which was built uh, in a, a low-lying part of Rome that was kind of swampy a little bit and had markets and tradesmen and um, even a port, you know, the, the boats on the Tiber could navigate at that point and land there. Um, this was a place of gritty, gritty dealings each and every day. And yet, uh, and that church was built specifically for the dispensing of charity by the Christian community. 
And so all these people could come in, meet the deacons, receive charity and be surrounded by stunning beauty uh, in this place. And everybody was welcome. So the church has always um, been about bringing beauty to everybody. Now in the United States in particular, we, we have a special claim on this. And it's, we're so young, it's not often that we get to claim something as our own, but, but this is, I'm gonna go with this one. Um, you see, in, in, in the old world, um, the idea was that the rich would, in some senses, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek here, they would buy their way into heaven, and they would give money to the church to use for beautiful things and to use for distributing to the poor, and then the poor would be the beneficiaries of that, right? But in the United States, that has never been our story. In the United States, it was the poor who built St. Patrick's Cathedral. It was the poor who built with their, with their nickels and dimes and gifts the Basilica here in Washington. It was always the average person uh, giving of themselves, right? And so for us, you know, the immigrant experience generated, if you think about our most beautiful, our most physically beautiful churches in the United States, they were all built um, during the great immigrant waves. Why are people so sad about the closure and merging of parishes in various places, it's because they've put their heart and soul into maintaining these stunningly beautiful places that the resources maybe they don't exist for that anymore. For, and that's a whole other conversation. But it was the poor who built this beauty, who wanted this beauty and who utilized this beauty to catechize their children, their neighbors and so on. It is only after the, um, the Second Vatican Council, and I'm not saying that the council did this, I'm just using that as a, a date mark, right? Um, it is only after the council that in the United States, uh, beauty was removed uh, in many cases in favor of us looking a little bit more like our Protestant brothers and sisters, those who were socially acceptable. There was a, a fleeing from our immigrant poverty roots uh, and, and, and a, a taking down of beauty as a result of that. And I would argue that in, in doing that, the church began, the church through her, her sons and daughters began to side with the elitist view of beauty uh, because we didn't want to look like those poor immigrants anymore. I think we need to get back to that. I think we need to take inspiration from, from our immigrant brothers and sisters. And will it work out immediately? No. But over time, indulging uh, the, the need of the poor and the love of the poor to be close and have beauty in their face will lead to a flowering of, of sacred art again. I like the way you bring this up, this idea of a kind of a, a juxtaposition sometimes between poverty and these kind of cultural riches. Mm -hmm. um, it just per, because personally, one of the one of a mass that, that um, well, my son's first communion uh, his mass for where he receives his first communion was at a very, a very small, poor, a very poor parish. Um, and yet the, because the, the music director's daughter was also receiving her first communion, he wanted to do something a little more special. So William Byrd's mass for five voices was the, mm -hmm. was the setting. And so we had this very beautiful you know, the kind of music you might go to hear in a concert hall or that you you might buy a record or something like that of- We're in our parish like, or something. <laughs> you know, I, we, yeah, we heard it in, in like this, this parish where there's like, you know, 
always water coming into it because it's it's leaky and <laughs> all and you know not i mean it, it was just such a it was so striking this kind of juxtaposition of, of poverty and a kind of hot what would be considered high culture perhaps and um anyway i, I love that though like that powerful image of what the church is 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 this beautiful shelter in a lot of ways one thing i wanted to ask about is the church and her influence on art um, today. In fact, you just recently in a in a homily for in your homily for Ash Wednesday, you you brought up a story about how the church um, really had an influence on a particular kind of movement within art. Um, and yet today, I don't think most people would think of the church as having much influence um, on the arts. Is can you talk a little bit about? either how that's happened or, or what may need to change? Is that something that can change? What, what's going on there? Well, it's always something that can change, right? Um, and I guess, gosh, where to start? That, 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 that's a big one. Um, you know, first, we, we lost our grip on art, I think, because of an iconoclasm, uh, a modern sort of iconoclasm. Now, that sounds like a very dramatic word, but it just means... Um, you know, the taking down or, or the ending or the stopping of support for uh, beautiful art in our churches, right? Um, and again, that, that's happened over the last 50 years or so uh, that, that we've really seen that. There's beginning to be something of a renaissance, but it, it's, it's hard. And there were all sorts of sort of ideological reasons for that. And, and um, But then what happened was we began to see what... I, I was talking with a brother priest once and I said, you know, I feel like we're in some sort of a, uh, a decadent sort of Baroque, you know, period in our history. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, we're in the, mid the Middle Ages. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, there's no resources. Everybody has to be purely practical. So when, when, when there's no resources, when, when, when there's not enough money, when there's not enough uh, personal support, when there's not enough volunteer support or whatever, everything becomes radically practical, uh, as they did uh, in, in, in the Dark Ages, uh, really, right, B before the flowering of, of, of um, Gothic sort of art, Christianity, and so on. And that's a shame. Now, wh why is that a shame? Because things like key parts of our faith, like loving somebody without question, uh, you know, even think about the, the first paragraph of the Catechism, God in an act of sheer goodness made everything out of nothing. He didn't need to, he chose to, he just, he just, he was gratuitously generous to us, right? So our art, our charity, our theology, all depends on a gratuitous, uh, very impractical approach to things. Christ giving himself up on the cross. He could have snapped his fingers to save us if he wanted to, but he chose a gratuitous totally self-generous uh, way of, of doing this. And the sort of Dark Ages pragmatism that we've fallen into now, uh, where it's like, oh, well, we'd love to do that, Father, but there's just not enough money. Or, or let's put it this way, it would be too hard to raise the money that we would need to do to put together a choir like that, or to, put, to build a church in that style, or you, know, you fill in the blank, right? How hard, is it, how hard is it today to pull together the resources to build a Catholic school? How hard is it today to build an orphanage or to build a medical clinic, right? 
it's so expensive in every way possible that we say, well, I guess we just won't do that. Think about it, not at that big picture level, but at a small picture level. Um, we would love to have a choir in church. Wouldn't that be nice to have a choir in church, right? Um, oh, Father, I'd love to, but you know, I'm working like 60 hours a week for my, my job because uh, I, I need to make the extra money because life is so expensive and rent is so expensive and kids are so expensive. So I really don't have time to do anything other than work, the one job. I don't have time when I get home. I barely have time for my children, let alone to come over to church and spend two hours at a rehearsal uh, for, for the choir that we want to form, right? This is not an uncommon story. It doesn't have to be a choir. It could also be uh, building the Knights of Columbus Council. It could be forming a soccer league. It could be any of these things. Who has time? What we, what we need to do is pray and ask Jesus for the inspiration to bust out of this purely utilitarian system. You know, I, I'll give you an example. When, when the Cathedral of Pittsburgh was being built, it's this beautiful Gothic structure, but it was built with modern technology, meaning in, in, at the time it was built with good old fashioned US steel, right? Now, how did they do that? How did these poor steel workers do that? They would finish a 12 hour shift at the steel mill, and then they would go to the, the building site for the cathedral and they would voluntarily contribute their talents together to build the cathedral, another four hour shift, right? Um, as it were. And that's how that stunning structure got built with the blood, sweat and tears of these people who gave. But you know, now for over a century have celebrated their faith in the most important moments of their lives in this building. We need to ask Jesus for the inspiration to be like that again, whatever that means in our day. Because otherwise um, we'll never influence art. Otherwise we'll never be that voice, that the voice takes a sacrifice. It takes a sacrifice to have that voice in the scene. You gotta and go to adoration, pray about it and find out, Lord, how do you want me, my parish, my community, my family to be part of a new flowering of beauty? Because that is a, a very evangelical thing. We were kind of going in this direction, but just a final word to close us out on this, you know, uh, on the practical terms of what people can do to be a part of, of promoting art and the arts um, in their parish. I mean, you're the pastor of a parish that's quite engaged and um, active with the surrounding community and patronizing the arts has been a part of that. You know, how, how can at the parish level can, could, you know, what are some initial steps? Obviously prayer, as you just now mentioned, is one would be one step. Um, are there other steps that Catholics could take at the parish level um, to better support the arts and to and even just and to reach out to artists where where the Catholic where Catholic parishes can be a place that welcome welcome artists that that may be part of it also in broad strokes very broad strokes uh, I would say a couple of things one is read okay read uh, the Tuscan bishops the bishops of Tuscany put together a beautiful letter called oh gosh what was it um if you look for the Tuscan Bishop's Letter on Art, it's a spectacular meditation on, on Catholic culture. Read um, John Paul II's Letter to Artists. Uh, read his chirograph on sacred music. Uh, and then all of the things in the footnotes for those documents, read those too. <laughs> um, because we want to make sure that as we step forward, we step forward in continuity with all those who have come before us. And when I say all those, I mean the saints, right? All those, in fact, 
We're recording this today on um, the 18th of February. It's the Feast of Blessed Fra Angelico, one of the great painters of the medieval period and the beginning of the Renaissance in Florence. So it, it's not about adopting a, a specific style, but we need to know how the saints and those who they hired and worked with and what they chose, we need to know why they did all that. Because that'll give us a good footing to step forward on our own in our era, right? Talk with your pastor. Talk with your fellow parishioners, get people together. Um, if your pastor seems uh, reticent, okay, be kind. Why? Uh, guys, your priests are utterly and totally shell-shocked and exhausted. Uh, and it, it's, it's really, really hard. Uh, so if you go to him and it seems like he's not interested or whatever, it's not because necessarily he doesn't want to do it or he doesn't have time for it, but... He's just shell-shocked. And, and so you start germinating something among your neighbors. That's okay. You are the church also, right? And maybe when you, you get a little fruit germinating, he looks and says, oh, gosh, I, you know, okay, yeah, let's, let's sit down and have coffee and talk about this, you know? Um, but just keep trying. Throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. Uh, that, that, that's very useful. And, but all, all, and always do it, you know, proceeding from prayer. Because, again, it's not going to be easy. And they're going to be, they're going to be, discussions or arguments or, or frustrations or all sorts of things. And how do you navigate through all those things? With prayer, with the lives of the saints, right? In adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, with frequent confession. Uh, and you're not gonna take probably a mile long jump in your efforts, in your parish, in your diocese, whatever it's gonna be. What, what I've discovered as a priest is we need to find our joy in making a leap of a quarter inch. <laughs> And with each quarter inch leap, the whole community, you know, move, moves forward a little bit. But, but do try, do work at it. When, when you fall over, get up and, and take another kick at it, you know. Uh, do not be afraid. Be not afraid. Uh, because the fruits of this are worth it. And the other thing is that you'll find whatever frustrations you may run into or, or seeming failures you may run into, the very process itself of engaging beauty, engaging Catholic culture, engaging art, the very process itself becomes a reward. I was listening to a podcast recently about happiness, a fantastic podcast called The Art of Happiness with Arthur Brooks. And one of the things that they were saying is that happiness, if we try to think of happiness as an end goal that we'll get to one day, we'll never get there. Happiness is a mode of engaging in the pilgrimage of life. And, and beauty is kind of the same, you know? Uh, if you think, oh, I won't be happy until I build the Louvre, well, I'm sorry, odds are you're never going to be happy, and you'll never know beauty, right? But if you think of each little thing that I do beautifully in constructing a little bit of beauty in my church, in my parish, in my world, then you're going to be surrounded by beauty every moment of your life, uh, and, and that's, that's not a bad way to live. That's beautiful, Father Derosa. And also, I was as as you were talking, I was thinking about the vast, um, many different areas of art. We have literature, we have music, mm -hmm. we have um, drama, as you said. Um, and again, like not yes, you you perfect, you want to grow in the um, accomplishments 
the accomplishment of art, right, and refine that. But you know, it, 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 there's going to be imperfections. Sometimes there's beauty in the imperfections, and you know, we have we have art up on our wall right now that our neighbor down the street, six year old neighbor, drew of our dog. You know, that's art. You know, there's beauty in that because it means something to us. It has a there's a certain beauty to that. So, yes, very very beautiful, wise words. Thank you. Well, thank you guys. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Father DeRosa. My pleasure. And to learn more about the Beauty Heals Initiative, uh, you can go to uh, www.usccb.org slash beautyheals. Uh, we recently added some videos to the playlist, uh, one video from the Diocese of Louisville and another from Arlington, uh, and we should have some more in the coming weeks. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Thank you.